You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Well, good morning, church. So yesterday I was watching Game Day. And uh, Game Day, in case you don't know, it's an ESPN show where they go to the local college towns or uh, they, they, they post up and they have all kinds of tailgate parties and all kinds of things getting ready for a big college football day. And one of the banners uh, that the audience had uh, as ESPN is de- declaring this all over the nation was basically saying that you should trust in Jesus, but you shouldn't look to a church to know who Jesus is. That's what the banner said in essence. Trust in Jesus, but don't look to a church. And I, I read that banner, and I was crushed immediately. And I, the second emotion that went over me was anger because I think about that Christ follower holding that banner, and I go, have you read your Bible? Because the Bible clearly states several times, over and over and over and over, that we as Christ followers point people back to Jesus. It's what we do. Like, how does someone know Jesus? Jesus oftentimes says, look at my people. So how, how do you know, how do you want to know God? Look at his people. And so it's interesting, though, that I see that banner right in front of today's sermon because we've been in this series called Rethinking the Church. And I think for so many reasons that we're in this series, it's because of statements like that and kind of these philosophical and theological beliefs that somehow the church is just this broken thing and it can't ever work right. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking in the book of Thessalonians and we've been looking to the church of Thessalonica to see that, man, they did a lot of things really well and God called them and appointed them in a place and a time to witness to multitude of people around them. And so we're kind of kind of going as a church, like how do we become more like the church that God has called us to be and less like a church that's maybe about things that he hasn't called us to. And so we've been walking. We're now in week 13 of this series. And in case you've been coming to Piedmont for any length of time, what you need to know is that's like a record for us, right? We've never, literally, never done it before. And hopefully you haven't been uh, bored to death. Hopefully God has stirred in your spirit countless times through what God has done through this text. But we've been looking into this idea of rethinking the church, to to figure out how we can become more like the church that God has called us to be. And in the midst of that, we've been, you know, kind of postulating some questions of like, why why don't we see the church growing? Like, if the church is supposed to be this thing, why don't we necessarily see the church around the world, church in our country, church in our city, growing the way that God has called it to grow, or exploding the way that God has called it to explode? And I first want to say, I think maybe it's because you and I, on a day-in and day-out basis, do not think about the calling that God has on our lives enough. We don't. We think about our job. We think about the busyness of our schedules. We think about what our kids are doing. We think about all these other things. But when it comes to the mission of making disciples, you and I don't really have that, for the most part, at the forefront. We don't necessarily see our job. I mean, I do because, you know, it is, right? Our job as making disciples, as a vessel to go out and do this, right? We, 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 we see it as a thing to, to put food on the table, to provide for our family, to make sure that we're pulling our own weight in society, but we don't necessarily see it as a vessel to make disciples, to reach people far from God. And yet, time and time again, God brings us back to this in Scripture that everything he gives us is for that. It's to make his name 
great and make the world around us know who he is. And I think the second thing, so firstly, we kind of miss the calling. The second reason why we don't see the church exploding oftentimes is because so many times in our life, you and I, the way we walk, the way we follow Jesus, doesn't look that different than the person who just lives a normal life as a non-Christian. There might be some subtle differences, but it doesn't look that different most times from a non-Christian or even a cultural Christian around us. So the question is, are our lives so closely connected to the world around us that no one can really tell the difference between a true loving Jesus Christ follower and just someone who was born in maybe even the South? Like our morals are similar, the things that we look at are similar, the way we talk oftentimes is similar for good and for bad. So we played this game this morning, True Confessions, because what we noticed in, in this game, to have a, a really good lie, it needs to be what? It needs to be kind of supplanted close to the truth. That's why Monica's lie works so well, because there was some shreds of truth close to this lie. And likely unintentional, but Here's what happens. What we do is we live lives that are so closely connected to this world that it's hard to tell what is the truth and what is a lie. Like as Christ followers, you and I are are living our lives so ingrained into the society around us that the passerby person, the person kind of looking, you know, people watching you in the airport or at the game, the person who's watching you, Can they even notice your faith from afar? I was like, oh, we have quiet times and prayer times. Oh, it's great. Okay, those are things you do really behind the scenes. How are those things overflowing into things and areas of your life that people see? So Paul, in his letter to Thessalonica, addresses this issue. He gets here in the the fourth chapter, we're about to open up. He gets to a place where he says, look, you guys have been doing all of this very well, but you know what? You want to be set apart. You want to be completely different. You want people to notice you. There's one thing in your culture that you can do right now that would be so drastically different that people will go, wow, they are absolutely Christians. They are 100%, no doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Christ followers. And if you have little ones, I would encourage you to go ahead and drop them in All-Stars or Treehouse if you haven't already done that. Because this morning, that one thing that Paul talks about, we're going to get into it, and it's sex. Right? That's right. We all, came, we all woke up this morning to hear a talk about sex. But I hope, hope at the end of it, because I don't think Paul's primary push in this text is for us to just land on the symptom, but he's for us to get to the root of the problem and say what it is, we take our eyes off of Jesus. And so hopefully by the end of this text, the end of this passage this morning, you'll see that what, G, what, what God has done through Paul is he pushes our hearts closer to Jesus. And as our hearts more closely align with the things of God, then our actions will as well. So if you'll stand in honor of reading God's word with this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus... That as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, 
your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You may be seated. So verse 1, right here, Paul opens up, and he, what he's doing is he's acknowledging that the people of God, the people in Thessalonica, are doing some things right. And he goes on to say, I, I encourage you to do more and more. So if we're going to rethink the church and in essence rethink how we express the faith God has given us to love and invest, then we have some things to work on. And he's going to move into those things. And one of the first things he gets to as kind of a building block for us to understand how we then function in God is the first thing that we need to see is that we need to never become complacent in our faith. Never become complacent in your faith. You are not there. You have not arrived. You need to continue to press forward. A.W. Tozer, a famous author, philosophical thinker, writes this. He says, complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Just when you believe that you've arrived and all is well, you take your foot off the gas pedal and you have made it right to where God has given you the place of where my faith is strong. In that moment is when Satan will attack you. Numerous times I've had friends call me, I've had people in the church call me, and other people around me give me a phone call, shoot me a text message, say, hey, will you pray for blank in this moment? Because they thought they were safe. They thought they were protected. They thought they had insulated themselves with their faith and those around them so well that this issue in their life could never rear its ugly head, but yet it has. See, you are never safe from sin in this world. And the moment that you go, ah, I'm good, that one's not going to mess with me. I actually even said this to a degree to one of our elders recently. He called me, picked up the phone and said, hey, I want to let you know that's wrong. And he, he goes on to tell me a story of a friend of his who kind of thought the same thing, and then that friend fell, and he goes, and here's why it's wrong. Because as soon as you think you've got it, Satan uses that moment to go, weakness, I'm going to get it right now. I'm going to destroy you, and I'm going to destroy everything around you, because that's what he looks to do. Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. We need to not become complacent because we haven't arrived. Jesus is still doing a great work in your heart. He's forming you into the image of his son. And so you need to become more like the Lord every single day. It's an effort. It's not something that's going to happen through osmosis. It's not going to happen just because you sat down and read your Bible alone or just because you said a, said a prayer. You need to be consciously thinking, how do I take the words of the Lord, the words of the Spirit, and let them wash over my body and then let that influence my actions. Let it influence my thought life, my behaviors, the way I work in this world. Then we will begin to see our faith become that much stronger. 
but we can never become complacent. Continue on in verse 2. Paul says, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Right here, Paul is kind of shifting, and he's wanting them to see that the Bible isn't solely a guide to teach you how to live. It does do that. The Bible is a guide to show you the Lord. See, I think sometimes we, we look at the scriptures as basic instructions before leaving earth. Like we open them and go, okay, how am I supposed to do this thing? I need advice on that thing. What am I supposed to do? The Bible does teach us how to live. But its sole purpose is not to teach you how to clean your stuff up. Its sole purpose is to show you that you aren't clean and that Jesus is holy and all you need is him. That's why it exists. He gave you this to give you the map to him. Not the map to cleanliness, so to speak. But when we get to him, cleanliness is a part of the process. Like he makes us holy, and that's where Paul is going to go to. He, 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 but he wants to make sure that you understand that these are not new teachings. This is not something that Paul all of a sudden just made up so that they would listen to him. Now he hearkens back. And he's talking about, hey, these are not new teachings. These are things that, remember when uh, Matthew 5, 17, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So Jesus comes and he connects this old covenant to this new covenant, and he corrects false teachers. And Jesus comes and it says he even opened up the minds of his disciples. When he appears to his, uh, the, the disciples after the resurrection in Luke chapter 24, it says this. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he says to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. When Paul is teaching here, he is not adding in Thessalonica. He's simply going back to the message that God's already proclaimed. And this is why there is such a divide at times in Christianity. Because when you look at the church, you have a divide among Protestants. Then you have a, a divide among Catholicism and, and Mormonism, I guess if you can put them in the church, and, and, and so on and so forth. And we're not going to get into the baseline teachings of why those three sects are different. Notice I didn't say denominations because Protestant, Catholic, and Mormon are not denominations. They are vastly different from Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian. Those are all Protestant denominations. They go under one umbrella. But if you look at Catholicism and Mormonism, they added to God's Word. Catholicism has what's called as the Apocrypha. They have 46 books in the Old Testament compared to our 39. Notice there's seven additional books. What's interesting about these seven additional books in the Old Testament, which they called Apocrypha, the Jews don't even necessarily accept those. Then they add in parts of books, the book of Daniel. And the Mormons, they have an entirely, entirely different book, Pearl of Great Price and, and others. And this is not even to come close to comparing to the Bible. Joseph Smith is, is claimed a prophet, and essentially Mormonism is 100% completely a different belief system than Christianity. But it's important because what you need to know is as you read this text, Paul is going, hey, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. He's hearkening back to say, I'm not adding anything. And when you do add something, you are taking away from the message of Jesus. Revelation 22, verse 18 says like this, 
I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. We do not add, nor do we take away from the Bible. The Bible has been crafted by God through mankind to display the Lord's glory and greatness. We should trust it and use it to draw us near to him, not the other way around. See, I think sometimes we think if we read the Bible, then God draws near to us. Scripture says that God is omnipresent. He is always here. Now, it's true that when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. But he is always ready for you to come as the son or daughter that he has chosen you to be to say, I am ready for you. Like, you don't have to do some sort of ritual to all of a sudden gain God's presence. He says, I'm here. Where are you? Are you with me? So we're not preaching this message when Paul is talking about this. We're not preaching this message to convince you to change behaviors in your life. And I think sometimes when we get to messages like this and we bring up texts that tell us to do things, like behaviors, to change behaviors in our life, we immediately go to the place where, if I just change this, then. And that's not what God says. God says, no. If you'll give me your heart, then I will go with you and I will change this with you. And so it's not a message to where I need you to hear and walk away from this. Well, I need to go fix these three things. That may be true. There may be three things you need to fix in your life. But what you may need to do first, what you will need to do first, I should say, is make sure your heart's right with Jesus. Because when that is in line, everything else works out. I'm not here to tell you how to change your behaviors. I'm here to point you to have an encounter with Jesus. Notice, Paul lays all of this groundwork to establish in our hearts what God desires to do. And then he's going to go to the one thing, the sing, he's going to single out one thing that will externally and tangibly separate the Christ follower from the world. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he gives a deeper definition We'll talk about sanctification here in just a minute, but he kind of pref he, he kind of gives it a, an explanation at the end. So your sanctification is God's will. Then he says that you abstain from sexual immorality. So he opens up and he starts talking about sanctification. And, and you could look at it like this: to express your faith is to become more like Jesus with your mind and behaviors. Because what you need to know about sanctification is, is it's the process that externally, tangibly separates us from the world. Because as a Christ follower, you are in the world, but not of it. John 17, Jesus' priestly prayer says, they are not of the world, talking about the disciples, talking about you and I. Just as I am not of the world, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It is God's will that you be sanctified. You've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He says to wash yourself with the word. Your word is truth. If you aren't reading scripture regularly, I want to say that we put out a devotional three times a week, walking through currently right now the book of John. And you can go on our website, you can sign up for that today to get three emails into your inbox 
Every week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you'll get an email to your inbox walking you through scripture and then giving you a quick devotional. It's like a four-minute read. And so if you're going, I don't know how to, I don't have time, I'm struggling with this, I don't know where to read, I got the verse of the day, I would encourage you to wash yourself with the word. And the verse of the day is not that. The Bible is good, but a verse by itself, out of context, randomly chosen here and there, would not be the definition I think the original authors were intending when they said, wash yourself with the word. I love the Bible. I love one-off verses. Context matters. Walking us through the story of Scripture is what will guide you closer to him, to have a deeper understanding of what he called you to do. So you've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. And then Paul says to the church, so you've been sanctified. You're being bought by Jesus to be made to look like Jesus, to be made into a saint. And he says, if you will abstain from sexual immorality, then your life will look much closer to the life of Jesus. And Paul chooses sexuality as the sin to highlight here. Think about that. There's a plethora of things that Paul could talk about, Paul could bring up, but yet through God's sovereignty, his omniscient knowledge, he chooses sexuality. Because Paul knows that you and I, just like the people of Thessalonica, will struggle with this topic. Whether you're single, whether you're married, doesn't matter. There is always a struggle. The Thessalonians would have had a, a great temptation to behave like the Gentiles and the pagans around them. We've talked at length in this sermon series already about the number of temples around them that all they would have needed to do to go to the God of fertility or go to the God of finances or go to God of crops was to go to this temple, pay some money, have some sex with a prostitute, and God will bless them. Little G God there. So anyway, there's these distractions in the people of God in the Thessalonians' life where they could have easily gone and expressed themselves sexually in a, in a plethora of ways. And so Paul tells them to be set apart in their sexuality. And this phrase that he uses in sexual immorality is actually the Greek word pornea. And it's where we get our word pornography or pornographic. But Paul is using it in the negative sense. He says, stay away from pornea. Stay away from these, these things of pornography, these things of por pornographic actions and images and all these things. And so he uses it on this negative sense, stay away from it. But I want to I come at it just to, to understand, to know what's going on, to say, what is it? Because in, our, in the church today, there, in this room, there will be a vastly different understanding of what is sexually immoral and what is sexually moral. So we want to go back to the words of Jesus very quickly in Matthew chapter 19. He gives us a baseline for what is sexual immorality. He says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh? 
So certainly this is a place to go look at the divorce ethics in, in, in the Bible, but it's also a place to see what sexual immorality is. Because God has given us a clear picture of what it means to have strong biblical sexual ethics. A, a friend of mine said it like this. He says, a biblical sexual ethic is established by God in created order as one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. And any sexual expression outside of that covenant is sexual immorality. One man, one woman, covenant of marriage, that is biblical sexual ethics. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. Anything that denies the male and female sexual relationship. So transgender, bestiality, homosexuality, self-gratification, excuse me, and more. Any sexual act outside of the marriage union. So basically, if you aren't married, sex in any form is sexual immorality. One night stands. And even if you are married, swinging. That is off the table. Any thoughts of sexual immorality, any thoughts, Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what is sexual purity? One man, one woman, in marriage, sex, period. It's pretty simple. Anything else is sin. Well, what if this? Nope. It's that. That's it. That's bottom line. And why does this matter? Why, why is this such an important? Why are we talking about this, Pastor? Well, because this idea of biblical sexual purity is probably of the utmost importance today than even it was back then. Because today you have Christians out there teaching all sorts of different beliefs, all sorts of different stances on what it means to have a, a, a different sexuality, a different experience here. I've even had parents in my youth ministry over the years say, I really want my kids to experience some of these things so that they'll know the real thing. And I'm going, no, like that's ruining the gift. If I gave you a tool to fix your car and then you use that tool somewhere else, you're not using it properly so you're never going to learn what it's supposed to actually do. I was drilling a hole in our brick wall out here at the church so we could run some piping so we could do some drainage with some things. I have to use a specific drill bit to do that, a mortar tile, a mortar tile drill bit, I guess is what it's called. If I use any other drill bit, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ruin the drill bit. Yes, I might make the hole that one time. That drill bit is shot. It's gone, right, James? It's gone forever. Is that what we want to teach? Yeah, you can go ahead and do that right now. It's going to ruin you forever. No, we don't teach that. Like, that's, that's dumb. That's not wisdom. God says, I made it like this. This is how it's supposed to function. And anything outside of that, you have broken the tool. He gives us the definition of it. So if you're single, if you're a student, what you need to know is right now, to abstain is probably not the norm in your life. It's probably not the thing that people are talking about. But it's the thing that you should be running to. I don't care where you are in your singleness. 60, 30, 12. Abstain. You need to flee from pornography and pornographic images and pornographic shows. 
like shows that kind of get on the line right there, flee from it because it's sin. It will not lead you to Jesus. It might give you an immediate gratification, but the thing you want most is more important than the thing you want now. And the thing you want most is a relationship with Jesus and to be walking with him and to be holy and to be made in the image after him. So choose what you want most rather than the thing you want now. You need to work hard to protect your thoughts because your thought life will ruin you physically. If you let it continue to go and search for this thing, lust after this person, lust after that person, lust after this thing, the idea of, well, maybe I wasn't made to be a man. I wasn't made to be a woman. What were you born with? That's what you were made to be, period. And if you were made to be a man, you were made to be attracted to women. Now, there may be sin that crept in and twisted some things, and so you get confused. I'm not going to say that that doesn't exist. There are people out there who are completely confused, and they would say, from birth, I thought this way. Well, sure, sin crept in. But from birth, God called you his, and he made you to be attracted to the opposite sex, period. Now, Satan may have gone in and twisted it and broken it, and there may be some healing and some processes that you have to go through to get back right where God has called you to be, but that is the way that you were made. Married people, we need to see sex as the biblical gift that God describes in 1 Corinthians 7. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may, excuse me, devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sex is a way where the married couples connect with each other, and they give of themselves. Notice, and I've been guilty of this as well, men, women, husband, wife, this verse does not support you walking up to him and going, you know, it's, it's about time, right? It's been a couple weeks, a couple days, a couple hours, whatever time break you want to put in there. That is not what that verse says. That verse says this gift of sex that we've been given by God is a thing that we're supposed to use to cherish our spouse. It's how we show them in a physical, tangible way, I love you, I value you. What your wants are, are more important than my wants. It doesn't mean that sex should be this uncomfortable thing to talk about. It's a gift, and it's a spouse to another spouse. We should be able to have conversations about preferences, We should be able to give grace when performance or drive isn't there. Like, we need to stop making it so weird because it's a gift that was given to you, married people. Sex is good in a context, right? Amen, right? No amens? Appreciate that. Okay. (laughs) So if you're single, if you're married, there's certain ways that we need to walk in this knowledge of sex, because if you look at the world around us, it's free game. Whatever you want, whatever makes you feel good, whatever it works, that's cool. That's, that's That's what defines you. But as Christians, one of the best ways to define yourself is to have a strong biblical sexual ethic. A guy was telling me recently, 
Somebody even walked up to him and was like, hey, you want to have a night stand? And he was like, no. That's, that's how the world behaves. And as the Christ follower, we don't behave that way. It goes beyond just the physicalness. We need to protect our minds and even our language. It goes beyond lust and, 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 and the, the things that we talk about, our needs and the way we be addressed. Because there's a generation of Christians being taught that their sexuality doesn't necessarily interfere with their relationship with Jesus. There are quote-unquote pastors out there declaring that you can be openly homosexual, you can be trans, you can be all of these things and be sitting perfectly at the feet of Jesus. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible also doesn't teach hate. And so this is why it's a confused topic because what we often want to do is choose a side and say, you cannot be gay and love Jesus. The struggle with that statement is that there's nuances to play in there. So I've heard some say, you can't own the word gay, but you can say, I struggle with same-sex attraction, but I love Jesus more. And so I repress these sinful things in my life, and I run after Jesus. I do think the Bible is very clear. If you function in any sin and are not remorseful of it, then it would be hard to line up that you 100% have decided to let the dead bury their dead and follow Jesus because you are living in something that your father, the redeemer of the world, told you not to do. And so you are in full disobedience of him in that. So Paul tells these Thessalonians, he tells you and I today that one of the best ways that we can define our and express our faith in Jesus is by having a strong sexual biblical ethic and to walk in that, to teach our children that, to hold a standard of that for those around us. And he finishes by saying this as the band comes up and I close. That each one of you in verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And he adds this, pointing back to, I'm not adding to scripture, therefore whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Are there places in your life, are there sexual places in your life right now where you are functioning outside of God's will? He's called you to lay it down. He's called you to, to have a big picture of who he is and to have an acknowledgement that he has paid a price for you. Whether you've accepted the price or not, he has paid it. And he said, come child, I want to give you life and life to the full. You are being confused by this world that those instant gratification moments, 
those false teachings make you a better person, make you more open-minded, make you fit into the world around you, but I have not called you child to fit into this world. I've called you to heaven, to a higher purpose. I've called you to holiness. And so maybe this morning you're struggling with pornographic images. You're struggling with lustful thoughts. You're struggling with actions that you can't get a hold of. My first advice to you would say, run to Jesus. Lay it all down at the foot of his cross. The second thing is to maybe seek counsel, seek help. Because these things can create such a stronghold that they're no longer just choices. They become addictions in your life. And they skew the way that you see the world. They skew the way you see relationships, the way you even see people. Because they're nothing more than something to gain. Just another moment to get you what you need. If you've never put your faith in Jesus this morning, I call you to do that. And what that means is to recognize that you're a sinner and you've been separated from the holiness of the Lord through your sin. Sin is uh, this word that, separate, that, that says we've, we miss the mark. We're not holy. And we've inherited this sin through the, sin, through the, the initial acts of our ancestors, Adam and Eve. And then we sin every single day in our lives, every single moment for the most part. And yet Jesus came and he said, all those sins, I'm going to wipe them off through my blood on the cross. And I'm going to make a perfect way for you to be reunited with the Father. And then I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit to turn from all of these broken things in the world. And that's what we get to in this text. It's Paul saying, if you've accepted Jesus, if you're a people of God, you're the church. You're the ones that people look to to see Jesus. Now act like him. In your language, in your thought life, and in your physical actions, and he highlights sex for all three of those. Act in the manner in which you've been called. That you are his son and daughter. Let's go to the cross. Let me pray. God, we are thankful for who you are. Lord, I, I pray that if there's any in here this morning that are struggling with any of the things that we talked about this morning, that they're struggling with their identity, their sexual identity, they're struggling with same-sex attraction, they're struggling with thoughts of, of who they are, addictions, behaviors. God, I, I pray through the power of your spirit that you will break those chains now that they will give themselves over to you and that your spirit will move in their hearts. That they'll no longer function in the dwelling of death, but they will be called and adopted as your son and your daughter, that they will function and that they will put on the crown and they will seek you in all things. You deliver them from that darkness and bring them into the marvelous light. God, if there's anyone in here that needs to make that decision, I pray that you, you stir in their hearts. You draw them forward. We come to your cross. We look at you. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.